find the way. Idil Elverish presents. In this program, my guest is Emily May from Right to Be. Hello and welcome to the fifth season of We Can Find a Way. My name is Idil Elverish. This is a podcast about conflict resolution, and thanks to you listeners, by 2023, I have already made it to season five. Five. I'm going to repeat it. Season five. <laughs> of course, I have to thank to all guests who have agreed to appear here and to those persons who have financially and through their contribution in marketing, translation, and the use of their materials supported me. Otherwise, I'm eternally grateful also because only 33% of all podcasts end up producing more than 10 episodes. So the fact that I'm getting close to 70 is really amazing. I cannot thank you enough. So in the first episode of the year, I'm talking to another amazing person, Emily May, who at the age of 24 co-founded Right to Be. This is an NGO that was established in 2005 in the United States to focus on street harassment. They initially collected stories of harassment, but over time, they decided to design a bystander intervention program. So the bystander intervention program teaches certain tactics for people that want to help the person who's being harassed, basically. So through these tactics, we the people or society in general have become agents of change, signaling to men mostly, that this type of behavior is not okay. The tactics of the bystander intervention program are called the five Ds. Delay, document, distract, direct, and delegate. These days, people in London are seeing in public transportation posters that ask what they would do if they witnessed this type of situation. And if you then follow the government link, to a website, you will see that these policies look quite familiar to these five Ds, stressing the person to act safely. So before I turn to our interview where we discuss all this, let me introduce Emily to you. Emily May is an international leader in the movement to end harassment and has won 11 awards for her work. She was featured in more than 200 news media outlets, including The People, The New York Times, and NPR. She holds a bachelor's from New York University and a master's from the London School of Economics. Now, let me turn to our interview. And Emily has a huge announcement at the end of the interview. So please listen to the podcast. All right, Emily, thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. So please tell me, why did you come up with this bystander intervention trainings that your organization is doing? I co-founded Right to Be, then called Hollaback, when I was 24 years old. And 
we always collected stories of harassment, but around 2011, we started really mapping stories of harassment. And it almost looked like a disease epidemic. You know, there were just these dots and dots and dots and more dots of harassment everywhere. And it was frankly really depressing to look at. <laughs> we're like, all right, is there anything related to harassment? That is good. Like, is there anything positive that happens? You know, after reading all the stories, it was clear that the one positive thing that would happen is when somebody would show up and support you, even if it was something small, like say, are you okay? It meant a lot to the person being harassed. And so we thought, okay, let's look into this and learned, you know, there's a whole field around this called bystander intervention. At the time, it was largely deployed to address sexual assault on college campuses. And we oh, partnered with an organization called Green Dot to scale it to look at issues of harassment. And it's taken off since then. It was basically a desire to do something about it rather than just take notes of an epidemic, as you have stated, because I guess you were getting frustrated about not being able to respond. That would be like giving people hope or showing them some tactics, I'm assuming. We were asked over and over again, you know, what do I do when I'm harassed? And everybody wants this like perfect response, you know, well, if you say this, they'll stop and understand, you know, the gravity of their words. If you contact these people or report it to these people, right? I really resisted that because I felt like, look, like you didn't ask to be harassed. It's not your responsibility to have some kind of perfect response to it. And at the same time, the people who are responsible for doing this, who need you change their behavior, the people who harass others, very challenging to get them into a room and say, okay, y'all, it's time to learn the impact of what you're doing. And so we just found bystander intervention to be that perfect medium of really acknowledging it's on all of us as a society to address this issue that the issue in and of itself as a cultural issue, not the culture of any individual person, but it's part of a culture of sexism and a culture of racism and a culture of homophobia that is quite frankly, everybody's culture and everybody's responsibility to address, right? This is harassment is just one of the manifestations of that larger culture. And, you know, if you look at how culture changes, it's because a bunch of people get together and decide to do a thing. And that could be like, we're all going to wear bell bottoms now or whatever it is. But it can also be like, we're all going to start intervening when we see harassment happening. And that's really where you start to see change is when people as a whole decide, no, this isn't something that we're going to deal with anymore. This isn't the price you pay for being a woman or being gay. This is what we want. We want to feel safe. We want to feel cared for in the world. Yeah. When you say perfect response, it makes me almost like laugh because there is no such thing, right? I mean, I do something with this perpetrator. It will yeah. generate a, a regret and I do the same thing with another one, it's going to enrage that person. So you can never know. So you're trying to shift the burden while trying to empower a victim. Well, we don't want to call her a victim or him a victim, but we also want to generate a societal response, obviously, if I understand you correctly. But tell us about these de-escalation tactics, because it's not only some of the tools that you're using are not only about are you okay or what you did is not okay, but intervention in a very discreet way, almost looking like it's not an intervention, but it's a mistake kind of. Why are you not escalating if you want change? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I think what we have learned through training people in bystander intervention is, first of all, some of us like myself are just kind of conflict adverse, right? (laughs) We're not comfortable marching up into a situation and being like, that's racist and you're an asshole, you know, but some of us are, and that's great too. The other piece of it is that most people who are going to intervene tend to share some sort of identity is with the person being harassed. That's not to say everyone, but it is to say most people. And that is partially because they naturally empathize with the situation, but it's also partially because they really understand what it looks like. It's hard to know what exactly harassment looks like when it's happening to an identity that you don't share, unless you're, of course, attending a lot of our trainings, in which case we'll teach you. But so when you're thinking about, okay, they're sharing some of these identities, or maybe they have other marginalized identities, it puts them at greater risk that the harassment's going to turn on to them. And so we really wanted de-escalation tactics that felt approachable, that anybody could be like, oh, I could do that. But that also kept you know the people intervening safe because if they're at risk, it's not going to help the situation at all. It just deepens the harm. It's also very interesting in the sense that you also don't expect when you relay that complaint to somebody, you don't really know how they're going to be responding. So it's safer to arrange your reaction. For instance, I was followed just like in your trainings by someone. So I turned back and I said to him, so why are you whistling? And then I realized it was in front of a hotel. So I wrote a letter to the hotel manager saying, this person is working at your place. So please, you know, do something. And the next thing I know, the woman fires him. And I'm like, I didn't want him to be fired. I just wanted to sit with him and talk to him. Or I wanted you to tell her. But she was very adamant. She just looked at the cameras. She saw me turning and talking to him saying, why are you whistling after me, etc. And I felt really bad because I really didn't want it to be that way. But then she was like, well, this is a tourism industry. A person who whistles after a beautiful woman cannot work in this industry. So I was like, okay, but he's not going to do it to a customer. How do you know? And so it was like, I almost felt guilty for saying it. So when I saw these five Ds, there is something for everyone without also not really harming the perpetrators. That, I think that's such an important point that you're raising because I think there can be a response that's too harsh, like somebody losing their job when really they just need a conversation. Exactly. Right? Or, you know, a lot of people, a lot of governments are increasingly endorsing the criminalization, harassment in public space. And that's something that we as an organization don't endorse, not only because we don't think it's an effective deterrent, but also because those types of policies tend to be disproportionately deployed against, against minorities of <laughs> color, Black folks, especially, right? You know, that's because we live in a world that thinks that particularly Black men are hypersexual, running around after, you know, the women and they're totally unsafe. And, you know, and these are myths upon myths upon myths. And like, we can't dismantle all the myths, but we can certainly do the work to not step into strategies that are going to increase the harm. And that's where we are is like, look, I want to be held in my full humanity when I walk down the street. 
I want to feel safe. But look, even though like you're kind of scaring me right now because you're saying those things to me on the street, I want you to be held in your full humanity too. I don't want you like drug off to jail and locked up to not see your kids for weeks or months or years or whatever, because you made a mistake. I want, you know, somebody to have a conversation with you. And I want you to know that this isn't okay. And I want you to see signs on the subway telling you this isn't okay. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that that's part of of really where we are and what we do is that, you know, we're not looking at criminalization as a strategy. We're really looking at community as the strategy. And if you look at how all forms of violence have ever been addressed, there's multi, multi multi-year studies on the most effective ways to address violence. And it's always communities coming together. That's the most effective way. It's not about the law or penalization. It's all about communities setting the norm that that's what they want. And so that's what bystander intervention is. It's a set of tools that are as old as time, right? That people have always been deploying. We just kind of package them and name them the five D's of bystander intervention and, and are training people how to do it so that they have it easily in their back pocket. Yeah. And any particular of these five Ds that you really like? And why do you like that one most? When we started, but my favorite one was delay because a lot of the harassment that I saw and delay is just simply, you know, are you okay? How can I support you right now? Do you want me to walk you where you're going? It's really only effective after the harassment is over. While the harassment's ongoing, you need to pick a different strategy. But I loved it because a lot of the harassment I saw in New York City, it was quick. It wasn't ongoing. And then I didn't know what to do or what to say. I didn't know how to be enough. And in some ways, delay just teaches you that just being there and checking in on the person is enough. It is empowering. And it is. And we have research from Cornell University that shows as little as a knowing glance can reduce trauma for people being harassed. However, there's also a high risk of screwing it up, right? You see harassment happening. You look the other way. That actually makes the harassment far more traumatizing for the person than if nobody saw it at all. So I love delay. I'll say, you know, I think the crowd favorite overall is distract because there's lots of creativity and distract. So it could be dropping your coffee cup or your phone if you have a very nice case on it or some change in your pocket, right? And people will scramble and help you pick it up or move aside because they don't want to get wet. And there's there's that type of distraction. There's also- This is the, excuse me, this is the research finding? Like in reply to your questionnaires or something. This is what we saw people doing when they were seeking to stop harassment. These are some of the tactics that we saw people doing. The other way to distract is just to start a conversation with a person being harassed about something benign. Like, I love your jacket. Where'd you get it? You know, or hey, do you can you give me directions to such and such, so and so? The idea is to build that rapport with them and to pull them slowly out of the situation with that strategy. And that's distract, right? And I think that's the crowd favorite because you get a lot of folks being like, Oh, I can drop my coffee cup. I can start a conversation with anybody about their outfit. <laughs> is there a gender difference or any other differences among people? Is this the women's preferred way? Did you do a study or anything to have that? kind of observation? We don't have data showing who prefers what and 
and why. I think broadly the trends that I'm seeing is that people who feel safer in a situation are going to be more likely to do something like direct, which is where you're very clearly setting a boundary. That's not okay. Don't talk to her like that. And then you are turning your attention to the person being harassed. And, you know, and I will say, you know, as I started this work when I was 24, I'm 41 now, as I've gotten older, I feel safer in situations, right? And, And I feel more comfortable being like, all right, dude, back it up. (laughs) That's not okay. Then I did when I was 24 years old. So that sense of safety is going to change from situation to situation. It's also going to change with age as well. Yeah. And how are you cooperating with the rest of the world? I'm saying this because I saw something very similar employed by the UK government in the Mm -hmm. subway. I think it was like two months ago. And when I clicked on the tactics that they were, you know, recommending, I just saw they were very close to your five Ds. There were only four though, which is fine because the logic was there. So I'm very curious about how you are spreading this in English. Otherwise, please tell us more. We are very well aware of that campaign and spoke to them prior to launch. We, you know, are also talking to public transit systems in Italy. We've been working with New York City for a long time. So, you know, I think there is a tremendous amount of power in public transit in particular taking this issue on. Broadly, you know, we have been spreading this work globally by training local nonprofits in countries around the world to be able through a train the trainer program to be able to deploy this methodology in their you know country and in their communities and we are are lucky to you know really have L'Oreal Paris being a huge sponsor of this work to bring this work to scale you know they're the world's largest makeup brand they took this on because they wanted to take on the issue that impacted women the most and they did research. What is it? Is it pay equity? Is it you know harassment? Is it childcare? And across the 10 leading countries that they researched, they found consistently it was sexual harassment was showing up as the number one issue impacting women. And so that to me is huge that this is the number one issue impacting women. And yet there's relatively little resources out there to address it. But also that's something that's changing. The idea that L'Oreal Paris is taking this on is a huge win that I couldn't have even imagined. Well, I did imagine when I was 24, but I was unsuccessful in pitching it to any makeup company. I tried. I did try. But, you know, and now these governments reaching out and and wanting to figure this out too. And I think for a long time, people really felt hopeless when it came to harassment, period, particularly harassment in public space. People really felt like the only time harassment mattered was if it was sexual harassment in the workplace. But even that was new. That was like the 80s and 90s sort of made that revelation. Before that, harassment didn't matter anywhere at all ever, you know? And so... It wasn't Um, even accepted that it was happening. You were just being blamed for being oversensitive. Hypersensitive female. Don't you like the compliment? (laughs) Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Like blah, blah, blah. And so now we see all these governments jumping into action. And and I think people were really hopeless about it for a long time. I think people thought there wasn't anything that you could really do. Bystander intervention gives people a little bit of hope because it's something all of us can do. We don't have to depend on anybody doing it for us. We can all do it. We just have to be aware when we walk down the street and go to the grocery store and go to work and play online, right? Like we have to be aware of of what we're seeing and seek to take care of people, which is a natural human reaction and desire, I think. 
And I think it's sharing the responsibility of doing something against this, not only putting it on the shoulders of the government or law enforcement, but also sharing it, as you have said, with the community so that everybody can participate. And it's not only like a criminal message. And I guess that's where also the value is. Speaking of law enforcement, what are they thinking about these things? Like, have you given any training to police officers or? Or did you get any input from them? Well, largely, you know, we've done bystander intervention training with them, but also a lot around just sensitivity. The response that we're getting from police officers is broadly bystander intervention is great. We love it. Like you do you, right? We want communities taking care of each other too. But the reality, and this is where we hesitate when we talk about delegate, right? Finding somebody else to help. We really hesitate telling people to contact the police. We always tell them, you know, check in with a person being harassed first before you contact the police. And that's because in our work collecting stories, we find that about half the time when people contact the police, the police will actually make it worse by being really dismissive. And, you know, and half the time they can be helpful. There's a risk, right, that you can deepen the trauma. There's also a long history of police doing the harassment, right? So there's a risk that it can be made worse in that particular way. And of course, you know, communities of color, immigrant communities, trans communities all tend to feel a lot less safe around the police. I think it's a complicated relationship when it comes to law enforcement. I absolutely think they, like every other person on the planet, have a role to play, but it's not a lot. It's not, people have this gut reaction action. Like, oh, let's call the police. The police will fix it. And I'm like, (laughs) data's not showing that the police are the right folks to fix it. Data is showing that we're the right people to fix it. Yeah. When you said they don't need punishment, they need a conversation. Are you interested in having victim offender mediation kind of thing or any restorative justice ideas that you're exploring in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I love all the work that's happening around restorative justice. And I think that there is a lot of unexplored space to be creative in how that can be applied to harassment. And I hope that we do that and that we're able to step into that work in the future. It's tactically very challenging, you know, especially Mm -hmm. when you're talking about public harassment. It is so quick. It is so passing. You don't know who the person is to have that depth of process because sort of justice does tend to be a relatively heavy process that requires building a container where both people can really feel safe. And so that's tricky. Thematically, there's a bunch of area for us to explore in here. And, you know, one of the things that we think a lot about is that there's a tendency to think about, oh, well, there's the people who get harassed and there's the people who harass, right? And you're either somebody who gets harassed or you're somebody who harasses. What we see and what we believe is that all of us have created harm in our life at some point. All of us have a moment that's like, "Mm, maybe I should go through the sort of justice process about that. That isn't actually how I wanted to show up into that situation. All of us have experienced harm at some point. Now, I will frame this out very clearly by saying some of us are harming others more and some of us are being harmed more than others. And there's a lot of identity factors that bleed into that, as well as just how people decide to show up into the world. It's important that we blur the lines between the victim perpetrator, person who gets harassed, person who, you know, it allows us to see each other more fully. It allows us to see the person who's harming us and being like, I wonder what's under that, right? And it allows us to hope to see it more complicated. I think that's when some of the healing starts to happen is that when we, we stop dismissing or writing each other off as just like 
well, they just harass. That's just who they are. That's what they're about. And not think about this in a binary manner, because that's not the only quality or the only thing that you have done in life. You view it in its complexity. You know, when we started Hollaback, I was 24 years old. I was like super bold, walking up to like dudes who would harass me on the street. They'd say the nastiest stuff to me. And at the time we were doing a lot of photographing of our incidents of harassment to really show people that it happened because nobody believed us. And so I walked up to this guy and I was like, why did you say that to me? And he was like, blah, 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 because you're hot. I was like, okay, I'm going to take your picture. And he goes, whoa, 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 lady. Like I have kids. I'm a good guy. Like at the time I was like, well, but then why are you out here treating me like crap? You're such a good guy. In reality, it's probably true. Like there is part of him that's a good guy. He probably does have kids. You know? <laughs> like he's not all like, you know, the scum of the earth just because he boldly was a jerk in this moment. I think everybody wants to be seen as good person. Mm -hmm. Any ideas from masculinity studies? Because we know this has also to do with patriarchy, masculinity. Anything you can say about that? Are you working with men or sexuality studies or... We do work with a lot of men. I think there's a lot of men who really want to ally on the issue of sexual harassment. There's also, you know, a lot of men, especially men of color, LGBTQ men, who are experiencing a lot of harassment and whose experiences of harassment aren't fully seen as valid because they're a man right? Like, how could you get harassed if you're a man? And shouldn't you just be tougher than to experience harm because you were harassed, right? I think there's a... Toughen up. Toughen up, exactly. Harassment's something that happened to women. And I think there's something there that really deserves exploration because part of, I think, the resistance for men to more deeply address sexual harassment is that a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them are getting harassed in their own ways, in ways that aren't being taken seriously by society, in ways that are super underexplored. You know, we talk about the ways in which Black men are murdered by the police, but we very rarely talk about the ways in which Black men can't go to the drugstore without being followed. This is the kind of work that I think we need to do. I think we really need to address these issues more complexly and realize that there's lots of ways in which we're hurting and there's lots of ways in which we need to figure out how to take care of each other. Thank you very much for this wonderful interview, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. And for any folks out there who really want to get trained in bystander intervention, we train hundreds of thousands of people in bystander intervention absolutely for free. So go to our website at righttobe.org um, and sign up for a free training. And it's online. I have taken part in it. Exactly. We're training you In wherever program, you are. My guest was Emily May from The Right To Be. Emily explained how they came up with the bystander intervention trainings to fight against street harassment. We discussed with her some of the tactics in trainings to understand why they were preferred by whom, including de-escalation, which is very important in conflict resolution. She also told me how they were cooperating with the rest of the world, but also combating not just street harassment, but harassment in all of its forms. Take the training if this is of interest. I did it almost a year ago and it was great. With that, I'm slowly coming to the end of this program. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please follow the podcast, like or share it. I'm also working on the website of the podcast. 
So please follow the website of the podcast. You can also like the excerpts I share in my YouTube channel or in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. As always, I would like to close by thanking musician Imre Hadi and artist Seren Göktan who allowed me to use their music and picture in the podcast. Thank you and see you next month. We Can Find A Way. Idil Elberich presented. <laughs> <laughs>